It truly is good to be in the Lord's house. Amen. I appreciate each and every one of you. I think it is spring break for students this week across the state of Arkansas, and people. some folks are out traveling, um, enjoying this uh, very springy-like weather that we've had as of late. <laughs> I'll tell you what, normally, normally um, I can dictate the, the, the feeling of worship. I don't want to say feeling or the mood or the spirit of worship. Sometimes it's affected by weather, and uh, when it's a cloudy day, people are kind of down and everything, but Jace, the, wor- the worship was restricted today because it was cold out there, and um, I, I said, I, sh- I greeted as many as I could in the foyer <laughs> out there, and I told Sister Sherry, I said, I've got to warm up at the altar here, <laughs> right here, to just uh, get my praise on for just a moment of time. I appreciate each and every one of you being out today. I want to say a special God bless you. I saw several visitors. I got to shake hands with a few, probably not all, but thank you for being here today. There should be a visitor card in the seat somewhere or a seat somewhere in front of you. We do um, appreciate it when you fill that card out just to let us know uh, by a record of you being here with us. And uh, if you'll do that, you can just put it on the foyer table when you leave today. That will be great for us just so we can have that record. Speaking of foyer table, Jace is going to put this out there here in just a moment. Um, Two weeks ago on a Sunday, I mentioned something that I'm calling the visitation team. And this is just a group of uh, men and women that uh, might join with me and any of the other pastors that help us kind of coordinate our efforts when we kind of have shut-ins. We've got kind of a, a, a host of shut-ins right now. Some of that's been uh, as a result of COVID. Some of it is a result of just aging. Some of it is um, in the uh, nursing home for rehabilitation. And uh, we just want to make sure that, that people that can't be here still feel like that they're part of the fellowship. Amen? And uh, w- people have been doing an outstanding job of reaching out, but what we've not just been doing is we've not been coordinating our, our efforts. So this little list, I'm going to meet with whoever signs up this week. I'll contact everyone via text. We'll try to coordinate a time. And we'll sit down together for about an hour and kind of coordinate our efforts together. So it says visitation team sign up. It's the last time I'm going to have it out here in front of you. Jason will put it in the foyer table. And then on the way out today, you can uh, sign up if that's something you feel led to be a part of. About eight people on there as of right now. And I appreciate each and every one of you. Um, I've got to say a special God bless you and thank you, first of all, for um, it was two weeks ago as Dr. Brathfield ministered the word that at the end of the service, he paused. He had gotten um, he had gotten in uh, coordination with the board and to recognize uh, Sherry and I for 20 years of pastoral ministry, and and I didn't come up and say anything behind that. 20 years of pastoral ministry here at Heber Springs First Assembly, and you know most of the time, men folk, we are not really into you know any type of ceremony or uh, you know rec- what is the right word of commendation or any of that nature. But I do thank God for 20 years. I thank God for an opportunity to have served. Um, the average tenure of a pastor in a community our size is about seven years. So I thank God for the 20 years. But the one thing I want to say thank you for is there were a number of you, um, well over half, that stayed around at the end of the service and formed a line like you were standing in line to receive something. But you weren't. You were standing in line to give Sister Sherry and I a handshake or a hug. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me personally that you would take the time to stand there like I'm some rock star or something to, uh, to, to hug my neck or to shake my hand. And I, this is the way I talk when I'm not around y'all when I 
here I try to be spiritual here, but I, I, at home I said, I said, Sister Sherry, I said, grown men, grown men stood in line to give me a hug. And I tell you what, that meant so much to me and the cards, and I appreciate it so very much. And uh, so this is my moment to say thank you. Thank you. It means so much. God bless you today. Um, secondly, or thirdly, it is, it is exciting to be in the Lord's house. We are coming off of um, some back-to-back ministry, special guest ministry. Dr. Brassfield two weeks ago, Pastor Andre this past Sunday and Monday. And, uh, and I've had the privilege of, of, of being a part of those services and feel rejuvenated. And today, I'm going to be starting a, a four-part series here today that I have uh, believed that the Lord has led me in that's going to lead us all the way up to Easter. And so I, I want to share with you here just real quickly. It's the context. This is the title of my series. It's called Seven. And uh, it's really more than that. It is, uh, it's seven things uh, that of significance in the life of Jesus. But that's a little too much to put on the screen. So uh, we're just going to narrow it down to seven. And uh, over the next four weeks, commencing next week, I'll save in a moment what the subject matter is today. But... Start next week, I'm going to share with you seven sayings. The week after that, seven statements. And then finally on Easter Sunday, seven days. Seven days. So we're going to just see what God has to say to us in the context of seven as it relates to Jesus. Now, here's a hope that I possess within my heart. It's something that my pastor, Pastor uh, Burton, um, who I hope to have share the word here the, over the next couple months sometime uh, to be able to come up here with us. Um, he shared with us many, many years ago as I was young in ministry and I was meeting with um, some other pa- young guys. Pastor was trying to help us develop in the ministry of the word. He made this statement. He said, in your preparation for ministry of the word, he said, it has to burn in you before it will burn in someone else. And I'll tell you, this is burned in me, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I feel it in my spirit, that, that burning like the two disciples that were walking with Jesus on the Emmaus Road. You know, later they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? And I, I pray that as we open this and look at it, I, I have this hope for you. I pray that, I pray that in this journey that we're going to take and commence today, that we're going to grow both in doctrine and in knowledge in our teaching, our understanding, kind of sometimes, sometimes you just need a broader sense of things. You just have to say, God, I need to see the beginning of a subject. I need to see an end of a subject and kind of look at it from there. I also pray that we gain revelation. Revelation simply means that which is hidden is made known. It's revealed. It's disclosed. It's open to us. Have you ever had things that were there in front of you all along? But it just seemed like they were hidden from your eyes. And then God revealed them to you by his Holy Spirit. So I pray that there are some things, and it may not even be things that I say to you, but the spark from this message and the series of messages moves you into the word of God, and then the Lord opens your eyes, and you can see things that you didn't see previously. And from that, I pray that it inspires you, puts you in awe of God through Christ. I stand in awe of him today. Let, let me go ahead and, and say something to clarify from one of the songs that we sang. I think that we did this previously, but the middle song that they, they chose today said, you keep getting better. 
you keep getting better. And if you listen to that without understanding the context of, the, I believe, the author that wrote that, it's almost, um, it's not true doctrinally. God changes not. He, he doesn't have to get better, right? He's always good. Come on, somebody. And, uh, but the, the, the author said, but from my perspective, my perspective. So I'm going to allude to a mountain just very quickly because I want to I ask you to think on that with me for just a moment. Um, when, when you journey, and I've said this to you before, when you journey along Interstate 70 coming out of Kansas, it's odd that I mentioned Kansas today. They're the former national champions. And, uh, but when you're coming out of 70 and you're going west, you begin to see the Rocky Mountains, and they just look just small you know, along the horizon. But the closer you get near to them, then you begin to realize just how grand that they are. Right, And so your perspective or your perception of the mountain, the mountain hasn't changed. Your perception of the mountain has changed. And so that's how we can say, God, you're getting better. It's not that God's getting better. It's just as I draw closer to him. Right? And so I want to, I want, I want to as in this series on seven, for just a moment, here's, I want to just drop this again with the mountain. Because here's what I want you to do. I hope and pray that it produces inspiration in you that puts you in awe of God through Christ, through Christ. See, somebody can tell you about the mountain. I can tell you about the mountain or the mountains. I can tell you the location. I can tell you soil type. I can tell you the geographical significance of the mountain. I can tell you the history of that mountain. We mean what history, what has happened on that mountain. Different things have happened on mountains and I can perhaps even try to tell you how to scale it. I can kind of point you to paths that you might be able to take or a particular path to its summit. Um, I can tell you how long that it's going to take, whether it be days or weeks or depending upon the size of the mountain, even months. I can try to uh, draw your attention to the weather and how the weather affects the mountain, but also how the mountain affects the weather. And I can tell you a little bit, tried my best to describe to you the view from the summit, and, and, and then even other things, the conditions of the journey. I can do my best to describe it to you, but I just, there comes a moment in your life to just have any measure of it. You just got to stand at the base of it, and just right there at the base of it, just let your own jaw drop when you see how grand the mountain is. And I want you to have, through this revelation that God gives us today, I pray as we delve into seven, and we commence this for four consecutive weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, I pray that God inspires you as you see Christ. So today, I want to ask you briefly to stand with me one last time. We're going to pray. You know where I'm going today. So, Pastor, where are you going today? Seven signs. Seven signs in the life of Jesus. Seven signs in the life of Jesus. We're going to pray today, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us. Y'all believe that today? I believe it today. My text has been reserved for later. We're going to get there in just a little while. Seven signs. Don't forget. Now, you know where we're going next week. Seven sayings, seven statements, seven days. But today, seven signs. We pray. Father, I love you. I feel so humbled to be here. I feel, Father God, I feel like I'm at the base of the mountain right now. I feel like God today, uh, because I have been privileged in preparation for the sermon to be able to glean in advance the things that I believe that you want to share. And I pray today, God of heaven, that there would be a fresh anointing in this room, 
that, Father, there be a fresh uh, anointing in my life to minister the word. The hearts of the people would be receptive to the word of God. Even now, begin to cause their hearts to burn within them, Lord. God, even now, begin to stir them in Jesus' name. Father, I pray, God, uh, that you would make me as the oracles of God. I pray that for just a brief moment of time, Father, human flesh can be moved out of the way. God, I have this treasure in an earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of myself. I pray today, God, that in my convictions and in my voice, they could hear your voice today, God. I pray that with all the faith, whatever measure you have given me, small or great, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen and amen. And you can be seated. So today, just very, very quickly, if I might, I want to talk to you just a little bit about um, a doctrine or a means of, of doctrine in Scripture that I, some call it numerology. It's uh, that the numbers. There are many people that have studied the Scriptures much more uh, intently than I have and uh, in greater depth have realized that God seems to consistently throughout His Word reveal either a measure of His plan, His purpose, or even sometimes His own character as He relates it to certain numbers in Scripture. And what, what, there's a, often a deeper spiritual meaning than just the number itself. But now we have to be careful because you can fall prey, if you're not careful, to soothsaying in that journey. So I don't want to go that far. I don't want to attempt to do that. Um, but I do want to look at the Word of God and say, God, I believe that you have chosen to reveal some things just through simple numbers in the Word of God. This particular subject is far too complex um, for me to even go into it in any great depth today. And I only know just a little hint of it. I, I've only just studied it just the surface level. But I'll just kind of share with you just a little bit just so that you can understand when I get to where I'm going here today for just a moment. So let's, let's identify with what we would call some common biblical numbers. The first is one. Immediately in your own heart. Hear, O Israel. The Lord thy God is one Lord. Two, division or double. Elisha said, Lord, I want a double portion. How can two walk together unless they be in agreement? So the power of two. Three means completion or people's perception of. Means completion. For immediately we see the Godhead, the triune Godhead. Been, that has been revealed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. However, he has chosen to reveal himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some say eternally existent as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so Godhead. But then we also see that he created man in his likeness and in his image. And you and I are a triune being. We are spirit, soul, and body. Correct? Four, which means creative works. We find that there are four directions. There were four rivers of Eden. There are four cherubim that we notice by Scripture. Five, many call that the number of grace. And also it alludes to the Torah. There were five books of the Torah. Matthew's gospel has five divisions. Quickly we see six. Six is the number of man. We find that in Scripture. Man was uh, created and, and they're on the sixth day. And uh, the Scripture then tells us that uh, in Revelation that it's the number of man. I'm going to jump to eight. Eight is the first cubic number. Two times two times two. Eight. Twelve is government. You have the twelve tribes of Israel. You have twelve pillars. You have twelve apostles. 
And in the new, uh, in the new covenant, the new kingdom, uh, in the revelation that is yet to come, there are 12 gates with 12 foundations. We see 40 as time and trial. Immediately when you think of 40, you think of the 40 days that it rained on the earth during the days of Noah. We think about Moses going up into the presence of God on Mount Sinai for 40 days. We think about the 40 years of wandering that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And we also find that Jesus himself fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. So it was a time of trial, 40. 70 is uh, prophesying, men prophesied. Jesus sent forth 70 to prophesy. And then lastly, 120. Uh, 120, there were 120 priests in Solomon's temple the day that the temple was dedicated. We call it Solomon's temple because he was the one that gave the, uh, uh, gathered the resources uh, along with his father David to build it. But really it was God's temple. And on the day of its dedication, there were 120 priests that have musical instruments sounding when the presence of God, in the Hebrew they call it the Shekinah glory of God, came into the house of God, and no, none of the priests were even able to stand. They couldn't commence, they couldn't continue in the ministry because the presence of God was so real in the sanctuary. You leap that forward to the new covenant on the day of Pentecost. The belief is, is that there were 120 believers somewhere in the uh, uh, somewhere around the temple when the Spirit of God fell upon them. So I think you can see just very quickly that there's meaning, but there's also correlation in numbers throughout Scripture. And I've just given you just enough, just a little bit of a surface, just to say, yeah, Pastor, all right, I'm with you there. I understand that in Scripture, and this is not all, there are many others as well. What about seven? Seven, many believe, means spiritual perfection or completion. In the Hebrew, the word seven means to be full. We see in Scripture that the tabernacle was built in six days, and God rested on the seventh day. There are seven days in a week. There are seven colors in the spectrum. There are seven branches in the, uh, in the golden lampstand. So we're going to talk about seven that we see in the life of Jesus, but we're going to do so in the context of John's gospel here today. And why would I say John's gospel? I'll come back to that in just a moment. John actually only uses the word seven one time in his gospel. It's in one of the things that I'm going to be alluding to in just a little while in the, um, I believe it's the, uh, the, the, the fourth chapter where John uses the word seven in his gospel. But in the book of Revelation, he actually uses it 35 times. And so he's continuing something. It means fullness, to be full, full of revelation. It's, the, it's completion. He mentions in Revelation seven churches, seven golden candlesticks, seven stars, seven angels, seven spirits of God, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven vials, seven mountains, and seven kings. So when he uses the word, he's using it to bring about a depth of doctrine, a completion. It is, it is an indicator of something deeper. The one time that, God, that John uses it in the gospel, it was the seventh hour. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So what John does do, again, he only uses it one time in his gospel, but what he does do is, as he is relating the miracles of Jesus, John's gospel is so distinctly different from the other gospel writers. Did you know that when you study the scriptures, now we know Jesus healed many people and delivered many people, but did you know that the, the, the gospel writers recorded 37 
notable miracles that had some measure of an account, a story, an identity, a person, not just the masses of humanity. There were times that the presence of God went forth to heal all that were in the crowd. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the seven notable, distinct miracles that are recorded in both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of these overlaps. Some share some of the same. Others, it's particular to their particular gospel. What makes John's so unique is John shares seven miracles. Seven notable miracles in the life of Jesus. Seven signs, if you will. Seven signs is the actual, the, the more correct word because we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And that's what I want you to see. And so as I begin to share here today, I'm not sharing any depth about these seven signs. I'm going to give you a brief overview because I want us to journey with Jesus for we are hastening over four weeks until the fateful day when the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ was resurrected. And I want to journey with this life a little bit. And I want to commence, uh, and, and just real quickly, I'm not going to take you to any of these passages. You're not going to turn. I'm saving a small text of Scripture towards the end of my message. So if you want to go to this in your own study time, in John chapter number 2, the Scripture says that Jesus was invited early in his ministry to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. His mother was also there, and he was there with his disciples. His ministry was new. The, the, the crowds have yet to gather. And his mother comes to him and says, Jesus, they have no wine. And, and I love his response, woman. I used to call my mom woman. I've heard others say that, and they got in trouble for it. But for whatever reason, it worked for me. Um, he said, woman, what have I to do with you because my time is not yet? But Mary knew enough about her son. That, that she just needed that his compassion would be awakened within him uh, based upon her request. And so she went to the servants and she said, whatever he tells you to do, you need to do it. How many of you know that's a living principle for us today? And so Jesus then said, there are, there are six water pots. He said, for, it was for the purification of the Jews when they went into the house. He said, take those, fill them with water, and then draw that wine out. Draw it out. Draw it out and give it to the governor of the feast. Many of you know this. We're going to just be reminded of this as we go, and then we're going to culminate. And as they did, they served it to the governor, and they served it to the other guests, and the governor stopped the entire banquet, the entire wedding feast, and he called the groomsmen forward, and he said, the pattern of our people is, is that we get the good wine first, and then as people have drunk, the bad wine on the back end. And then I'm expecting most Pentecostals not to know anything about that. And so he said, but you have saved the best wine for last. Because of the supernatural power of the prophetic word of God, Jesus bypassed the time that nature takes to produce good wine. Are you out there today? And so we're going to get to that. That was the beginning of miracles, John said, that would manifest his glory. John chapter number 4, the scripture says that he has returned now to Cana of Galilee after he's gone into Judea and he's gone to Jerusalem. And this time when he's in Cana of Galilee, a man, a nobleman that's dwelling in Capernaum, which is along the Galilean seashore, and he sent word and he comes himself purposely to Jesus and he says, my son is sick at the point of death and if you don't come to my house and heal him, he said, he's going to die. 
And Jesus, kind of in reproof, the same way that he did to his mother, he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the man was so moved and compassion said, sir, if you don't come, my son's going to die. And Jesus said these words. He said, go thy way, thy son liveth. And John records that the man believed the word that Jesus said. How many of you know you need to believe the word that Jesus says? And he went his way. And as he's making his journey from uh, uh, Cana back to his house in Capernaum, servants from his house come to meet him and tell him, he said, they say, your son is, is healed. And he said, well, when did he begin to get better? And they said, at the seventh hour. And the man knew it was at that moment, at the seventh hour, that the Son of God had opened his mouth and said, your son lives. And he went home and he believed with all of his heart and all of his household. Man, that's a good word right there. We're going to discover that in a moment. We're just journeying. We're just growing in our understanding for just a little while. Then we turn the page to John chapter number 5. We find that Jesus returns back to Jerusalem. This time he comes to a particular pool. Pastor Andre ministered from this text on one of his sermons. And he comes to a pool that's called Bethesda in uh, that culture. Beth means house of mercy, house of mercy. And it was noted that there are five porches in that particular uh, area that they had put as a covering so for the people that were coming and had started gathering. The Bible doesn't give us any history of, of how things uh, uh, arrived at the place that so many infirmed people, blind and crippled and uh, with all kinds of diseases, were gathering around the pool. But it was because God in His sovereignty was sending an angel at a particular season and He was troubling the water. And when he would trouble the water, they said that, the, that when the water was troubled, whoever could get in the water first would be healed of whatever plague that he had. Jesus is walking in the midst of all those sick people, and he finds one particular person. I tell you what, now I know that the goodness of God is good uh, all across to all of us, but God will also search out one person. One person that he is choosing to reveal his power and his glory in. And he finds one man and he asks him a simple question. He says, wilt thou be made whole? That's a word for us today. That same word echoes from the moment Jesus spoke it. He said, wilt thou be made whole? The man said, I don't have anybody. He said, I'm way over here. And he said, and I'm lame in my feet. And he said, I, can't, I don't have anybody. Nobody will come to me when the water gets troubled. He said, it's every man for himself. There's no compassion in anyone. He said, it's whoever gets there the first gets in the water. I don't have any man to put me in the water. And Jesus said, today you do. Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. And he took up immediately, immediately, 38 years of brokenness, 38 years of begging, 38 years of watching life go by without the ability to get up. And in a moment's time, he rises up, folds up his pallet, folds up his blanket, and begins to walk amongst the people. And the Bible says that it was done on the Sabbath day. Now, with all of John's miracles, the reason why they're so unique is there's always an additional story. That miracle began to agitate the religious leaders because the man was carrying his pallet. That's what religion will do for you. Right? And instead of celebrating with a man 
who had been healed miraculously of a 38-year paralysis, who was unable to work, unable to provide for his family, unable to walk into the temple, unable to rejoice uh, at, at the goodness. No, no, instead of celebrating, all they cared about was their religious doctrine. Jesus found him later in the temple, and he warned him, and it's a warning for us. He said, he said now listen, he said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. It's a powerful scripture. We're just moving on. I'm not trying to take you into the deal. I've been preaching for a long time now. I used to not be able to say that I've preached all of these individually, every one of them uh, it deserves, but we're going somewhere in particular today. John chapter number six, Jesus, John chapter number six is a great, he's, uh, the great multitude has come out into the wilderness and Jesus has sought an opportunity to teach and he teaches for a long time. And uh, as the day begins to draw close to setting, he, he doesn't want to send the people back without eating. And he tells his disciples, we need to give them something to eat. One of the disciples said, you know, he said, 200 penny worth. We don't, we don't have McDonald's out here in the wilderness where we're at. And even then, have you seen the inflation under, uh, under Biden? You can't get a dollar burger anymore. And so we don't have enough. Uh, we can't, we, there's nothing out here. And finally, another disciple says, I believe Andrew, said, we've got a boy here, and he's got a little lunch that his mom sent with him, and uh, it's, it's, it's got five loaves and two fishes. Now, I graduated from Wilburn, and, but even my math can put that together, five and two, which again, we see seven. He said, make the people sit down, and the people sat down in uh, groups of 50. There were about 5,000 men plus women and children. They tell us that could be about 15,000 people. That's a big potluck dinner fellowship on a good Sunday. Amen. And Jesus said, bring the boys lunch to me. And in the presence of his disciples, he holds the five loaves and the two fishes. And here's how Jesus prayed. He didn't pray the way that we pray. We pray with our heads bowed, attempting to be reverent. Jesus lifted up his eyes toward heaven, thanking God, the creator of heaven and of earth, thanking him for provision. And when he thanked God for provision, he broke the bread and he began to pass it into the hands of his disciples. And when he began to pass it into the hands of his disciples, when it went from his hand to the disciples' hand and to the people's hand, God began to multiply it until at the end of the day, everybody had had an all-you-can-eat fish dinner and they took up 12 baskets, one for every disciple for the next day. Glory to God. It's a powerful revelation of the power of God. We'll get to what a little bit of that means at a little bit later. And that miracle was so effectual that the scripture says that people began to say that this has to be the prophet. They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, this is no ordinary man. This has to be the prophet that's coming into the world. And so then they, Jesus perceives that they're going to come and take him by force and make him king. So Jesus has his disciples send the people away. He goes up into a mountain to pray. And when the people are sent away, as the evening began to set, uh, the disciples get into a ship and they begin to row. And they go out into the Galilean Sea. And now, we, this has been noted many times here, but the Galilean Sea is notorious for, for night storms that blow in. Years ago, when we had the opportunity to go to Israel, we stayed two nights along the Galilean Sea. And when we did, a storm blew in that night that put us all aware of this text and other texts of Scripture because it was like straight light winds that just blew in. 
40 to 60 mile an hour winds came and oftentimes comes and funnels through some of those uh, corridors there on the lake. And it was a night like that when a great storm began to blow. Jesus can see them struggling on the water. This is not the text where he asked Peter to get out, but they're in the darkness uh, and struggling when they see a silhouette of someone walking on the water. They suppose it to be a spirit and they're afraid. And Jesus says, It is I, be not afraid. And so they receive him into the ship and often overlook is the miracle the moment that he put his feet in the boat immediately the boat is at the land where they were going because when you get Jesus in the boat glory to God there's no telling what can happen and from there very quickly that was miracle number five uh, John chapter number nine we see this there's a blind man the scripture says that they discover a blind man. They had ministered to a lot of blind men. But this one is unique because of John's dialogue about it. Because the disciples asked the question. So we got one more after this, and then I'm going to take you where I want you to go. But you have to understand that these seven miracles are unique to John's gospel. John pins them for a very, a very decisive purpose that I'm going to show you in just a little while. And so this man is blind and, and born from birth. And then his disciples ask a question. And by asking this question, it means that it must have been a commonly held doctrinal position by many in the Jewish culture. They looked at the man that was born blind and they said, who has sinned, this man or his parents? You know, that's a painful question, isn't it? Who sinned, his parents that would have caused this? Or the man himself, but he was born blind. Jesus said this, neither. Now, it's not meaning that we hadn't sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But they had not sinned to the degree that created this man's blindness. Jesus looked at it entirely different. He said, but for the glory of God. But for the glory of God. And there's such depth. Oh, my gosh, I could preach that one, but I'm not going to. What he's saying is many, this is a full-grown adult at this particular time. Jesus said that this man has gone through this blindness every day of his life up until this day, that on this particular day, God could be glorified by the manifested power of the Son of God. I'll tell you what, when you learn to see your circumstances that way, things will begin to change in you because as it changes in you, it will eventually change around you. Let me go a little bit farther. And so Jesus spit on the ground, made clay, and then sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash. And when he washed, he received his sight. And then, again, it was on the Sabbath day. And once again, the religious leaders are all in a fervor. And so they're questioning anybody and everybody about why and who and how is this with all types of accusations. They won't take the word of the man, so they call his parents. And his parents are afraid because they've already put out word that if you say that Yeshua is the Messiah, you're going to be cast out of the synagogue. And so they said, it's our son. He's an adult. We know he was born blind, but he's an adult. Ask him. So they bring him back, and they ask him again, and he responds, I 
like his response. I've already told you, but you didn't uh, believe. I just told you that he said, go and wash. All I know is I was blind and now I see. You know, sometimes you don't have to defend God. God needs not our defense. Sometimes all you have to be able to do is just to say, my life was a mess and now God put it back together. I was blind, but now I see. I was crippled, but now I walk. I used to be depressed and downcast, but now I've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. I don't know how he did it. He just did it, and I'm just here to testify of his goodness. He just said, Lord, I believe. Jesus said this. He met with him later, and he said, do you believe in the Son of God? And the man said, I believe. And he said, the one you're looking at is the Son of God. And then Jesus said this, for judgment I came into this world, that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. That's a warning to us today. Lastly of the seven signs, before we get to the heart of the message in the final couple of pages of notes here today, John chapter 11. Oh, if you got any preaching in you at all, you can preach John 11. I'm telling you, a half-backslidden Baptist could preach John 11 because that's the story of when Jesus got word that his good friend Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha had sent the word to him, and they said it this way, Lord, whom thou lovest is sick. Didn't say, come, please come. Like The nobleman said, if you don't come to my house, my son's going to die. They just believed that Jesus loved Lazarus so much that if they just let him know he was sick, he would immediately come. And Jesus surprised all the, of his disciples when he abode where he was at for two additional days. After two days, he turns to his disciples and he said, he said we're going to go back to Judea. And uh, he said, uh, and the disciples heard about it and said, Jesus, the last time we were there, they were trying to kill you. Jesus said, well, it doesn't matter because our good friend Lazarus is sick. And he said, we're going to go and we're going to awaken him and, or we're going we're to raise him up. And, and we're, we're, you know, he even used the term he's asleep at one time. And then one brother said, well, if he's asleep, he's getting over the sickness and he's doing well. And Jesus finally just had to talk plainly with him. He said he's dead. Jesus, by divine revelation, knew that he had already died. And he said, but we're going to go and wake him up. Jesus makes this journey back. I love this. You've got to read it on your own. There's so many nuances to it. I've preached it for many, many years, and, and it's a stirring in my spirit every time that I read it. But when Jesus gets closer to the little town of Bethany that's two miles outside of Jerusalem, Martha comes. And if you know anything about Martha, Martha's that type of person. She just speaks her mind. <laughs> Good place for you to say that, Lynette. And uh, she just speaks her mind, and she just said, Lord, she's just showing her frustration. She doesn't bow reverently and say, Lord Jesus. She's just like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. Why, why, you know, and she, there's hurt, and there's frustration, and then to a degree, there, there's some anger. And, uh, and then Jesus responds to her and says, your brother's going to rise again. And she's like, I know he's going to rise. I've been trained in the, in the ways of Judaism all of my life as well, standing in the outer court of the synagogue. I learned these things. There's going to come a last day, and we're going to be raised up. And Jesus said, she said, I know he's going to at the resurrection. He said, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Martha, do you believe that? Yes, I believe. 
And so then as they get closer, word gets back to, my, to Mary who had stayed in the house. Mary's softer spoken, and she weeps, and she comes forward, and she says the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. And her, her tears moved Jesus in compassion. And this is that famous passage of Scripture where it says, and Jesus wept. And so then Jesus goes, and he gets near the burial chambers of Bethany, and he says, roll away the stone. And once again, Martha can't contain herself, and she says, Lord, Lord, it's four days dead in this Middle Eastern heat. His body is already starting to decompose. Uh, there's going to be a great stench. Jesus said, I told you if you will believe, you will see the glory of God. And they rolled the stone away and the resurrection and the life cleared his throat, opened his mouth and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead and bound with grave clothes came walking out because the resurrection and the life called him from the pit of darkness glory to God hallelujah and it is recorded there that and these miracles and I got to leave it off and you say pastor brown then very quickly very very quickly what would you say about what can I conclude from those seven signs John particularly chose these seven signs I think you and I can conclude a lot of things we can conclude that God has power over nature, right? That there's nothing in nature that he, as the creator, does not have supernatural power over. I think we can also see that not only in nature, in the, in the creation, but also in us. If he can turn water into wine in a moment of time, he can take your old cold, stony heart, and he can give you a heart of flesh, a heart of grace, a goodness, a desire to serve the Lord. He, the scripture says that the man believed his word. I can preach all day about just believe his word. Just believe his word. You don't have to have it spelled out for you so doctrinally astute just believe what he said he can make us whole did you know the word whole there in scripture in the original language of greek is sozo i don't know if it's pronounced that way s-o-z-o it means saved healed and delivered god can make you whole today you believe that today i believe that i tell you what i also believe he's my bread he's my bread we're going to come back to that one in just a moment to close I also believe, what can I conclude from the, what can I conclude from these seven things, these seven signs? I, I believe he'll come to you in your darkest night. Right? I believe that in your darkest night, at the deepest place of your struggle, he will still find you. I believe the Lord can open your eyes and you can see and see his glory in ways that you've never seen previously. I believe in divine revelation. Do you? I believe that there are times related to God that it's been there all along, but he simply lifts the veil, and you get to see a side of him that you have never seen previously. I believe, what, what do these miracles reveal to us? It, it reveals to us that he is the resurrection, and he is the life. You believe that today? But I want to begin to shift this and bring this to the one point. I have one point for you today. I've talked about seven signs in the life of Jesus. And I've given you a broad sense, the Gospel of John. But there's something in these that we've got to see. So after his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and his two appearances to his disciples, at the end of this Gospel of John, Jesus, John makes this statement. Here's what he said. He said, 
If I tried, I'm paraphrasing, if I tried to write down, or we tried to write down everything that he did or said, he said the world itself could not contain the books written therein. Have you thought about that? He's saying that the weight of everything that he did or said, if we tried to write it from a particular angle, as God revealed it to us, that the earth itself would begin to tilt off of its axis because of the weight of the volume of books that he did, that would be written based upon what he did. But he made a statement, here's my text, in relation to the seven signs that I want you to see here today. In John's gospel, this is where we're going to gain our one and only point here today. So I've said, I borrowed from you, Dr. Brassel. That was my introduction. This is my sermon. John chapter number 20, verse number 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus, and, and leave this one up there, Lori, when you, for just a moment. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciple which are not written in the book. Now, Paul's right there. Remember what I said? It's in the 21st chapter of John where he said there are so many things. I, I, can you imagine those, 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 those apostles sitting down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit attempting to write all that they had seen? Never had a man spoke before like he spoke. Never had a man done the miracles that he had did. Never had anyone in the history of mankind from Adam until that particular man, Christ Jesus, had they ever seen or heard the things that they had heard. And he had concluded that we can't even write down. Our minds cannot fathom everything. And here John says it again. Many other things he did. Many other signs he did. That are not written in this book. But verse 31. But those seven signs. Completion. Fullness. But those seven signs. Those signs are written. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And listen to this. And believing you might have life through his name. <laughs> Let me go ahead and put this in context for just a moment. Just earlier, Jesus had told Thomas... He said, Thomas, remember what Thomas said? Unless I touch him, unless I feel his hand, unless I put my hand in his nail-scarred hand, I will not believe. But when Jesus appeared to him, Thomas said, Lord, I believe. And Jesus reproved Thomas. And he said, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. But blessed are those that are seated here at Heber Springs First Assembly of God on a cold day in March. And they have never touched my side. They have never touched my hand. They have never ran their fingers across my scarred brow but by hearing they believe so blessed are those who hear and believe glory to God hallelujah and so now Jesus John captures and he says but these seven are written that you might have life through his name let me go ahead and bring this revelation to you very quickly today here it is don't throw stones at the preacher today. But I'm not talking about abundant life. I'm not, I don't believe Jesus is refer, referring to a comfortable life. I know we live in the generation of a blessed life or a full life. Did you know sometimes on this 
side of eternity, circumstances circumvent that type of life. But what he's talking about is eternal life. Let me just bear down on that. I feel it in my spirit. He's talking about these signs have been recorded under my pen. I walked with him. I talked with him. I was there when every miracle occurred, and I've pinned it. I've pinned the events before it happened. I've pinned the event as it happened, and I've pinned many of the events after it happened so that you could understand how that they, the need arose, how Jesus addressed the need, and then what the repercussions were from the situation when Jesus ministered to it, how did it affect the religious leaders, or how it just simply brought joy to the simple people. John said, I've written all of these things down so that when you read them or you hear them, they burn in your spirit and it stirs your heart to use the gift that God's given you. What gift is that? The gift of faith, the capacity to believe, to say in believing, I believe that that man that walked on the water, that man that sent the word to the nobleman's son, that man that turned water into wine. That man that stood outside the burial chambers, that man is the Son of God, the mediator between God and man, and I put my faith in him, and when I do, I receive the greatest gift of all, eternal life, glory to God. Why is it that we don't celebrate in the American church uh, eternal life over abundant life? Now, I believe, I believe in an abundant life. I believe that God prospers us. But I'll tell you what, if you don't understand the revelation of eternal life, you'll never have any of the other. So let's look at this just for a minute, just for a minute in closing. The rest of the text, we're going to turn back to one of the miracles. Not the seventh, not the one that I could easily preach from, which was Lazarus, which was my original intent. But John chapter number six, following the breaking of the bread. Following the miracle of walking on the water. When the boat arrived, excuse me, on the other side of the sea, people began to run towards him. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they came to him. And notice this, it's the 26th verse. It's there on the screen with you. I want you to see this. I'm closing. These are the final things that we're going to see today. Seven signs in the life of Jesus. My prayer is that you grow in your knowledge of Jesus. You grow in the doctrine of the Word of God. But none of that, unless you stand in awe of Him, of His goodness and of His grace, that God has chosen Him to reveal Himself through the Son. Look what Jesus said. Verily I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles. See, if I see a miracle, I can rejoice that you received the miracle, but it's not necessarily quite affecting me. But he said, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did participate in one of them because you ate of the loaves. He said that all the people, he said, all the people that's gathered here, he said, it's not that you saw the miracles, that you stayed around, that you got in your boat, that you walked along the edge of the bank until you found me wherever, when we got off of the water and where we were at. He said, it's because you ate of the loaves and were filled. But catch this 27th verse. Oh, this is a word for us today. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. I thank God for God's blessing. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, 
which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. I want you to let that get in your spirit the way it's gotten in mine over the entirety of this week. Labor not. Let's go farther. He doesn't stop right there. Verse 32, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which came down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Let's go farther. Verse number 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse number 47 through 51 to conclude our scripture text. Verily, verily, I say, anytime you see that in scripture, this is a point of emphasis. John is recording the words of Jesus to validate the sign of the bread. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead. But this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof. Are y'all reading the same Bible I'm reading today? And not die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And so today, let me see if I can culminate this just out of my heart to yours today. I believe that John's seven signs, as powerful, there are nuances, there's revelation, there's types and shadows. You can read them individually. God will quicken something inside your spirit that will move you and stir your spirit. But collectively, John says, these I have chosen to write down as the Spirit of God directed my hand so that when you hear these accounts, when you read them with your own eyes, when a pastor in Heber Springs ministers and briefly alludes to all seven of them in one Sunday morning that the stirring in your heart will agitate the gift of faith inside of you and by believing you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God you will have eternal life dwelling on the inside of you. Now let me put that into perspective if you will for just a moment of time. If I can, just from my heart to yours, because as a pastor, this is something that I do. I've walked with many people through what's called the valley of the shadow of death. I want to begin to separate it, if I can, from even one of the miracles. Oftentimes, when we think just very quickly about Lazarus, many of us, all of us preachers, have probably alluded to that miracle this way, that Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. But Lazarus was not resurrected from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he would succumb to death again. But because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the Bible says he became a life-giving spirit. And so John would record later in the gospel that after his resurrection, he breathed on his disciples the breath of life. 
life. And he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Pastor Brown, what happened in the, in the disciples when Jesus breathed in them? Here, I'm going to try to take you into doctrine the best that I understand. That going back to numerology and the triune nature of man, we were made in the likeness and the image of God, spirit, soul, and body. But when Adam sinned in the garden, there was separation. They call it separate. They call it spiritual death. There was no life, eternal life dwelling inside of man any longer. We could know God. We could see him from afar. He was like the mountain. We hoped to get near him. But we could not commune with him in the spirit because we didn't have his spirit on the inside of us, dwelling inside of us. But when Jesus' blood, the atoning sacrifice, had, uh, had, had been accomplished on the tree and when that just demand of the Holy God had been met, God could now restore man to where he had been in the Genesis. And so Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, is now a life-giving spirit. And so when you hear the gospel based upon the seven signs and your heart burns in you and you says, I would you say within yourself, I want to believe God breathes into your spirit the spirit of life through Christ Jesus. The spirit of God joins with your dead, lifeless spirit and regenerates you, giving you eternal life. And now you can commune with the Father. You have fellowship with the Father. You walk in the light as He is in the light because of the life of God that's now on the inside of you. And yes, it is as if you were dead in trespasses and sins, but now you're raised again to newness of life, and therefore you shall never die. Wow, that's good preaching on a Sunday morning. And it is the gift of God. Eternal life. I thank God for an abundant life. I hope that you don't think that I'm trying to be negative concerning it. But the reality is, is we have shifted. We have made the major the minor. And the minor the major. The greatest gift is eternal life, church family. It's... I'm telling you, this is a fleeting life. What do you get? 70 years and now 78. Age of men is 78. Age of women is 83. We all know there's a lot of reason why women outlive men because men do stupid things. Right? But at the very best, what did God say? He said, I'll give you 70 years and if by reason you might gain an additional 10. You're like a wisp of smoke. You're here today and gone tomorrow. But when you heard the seven signs and your heart was warmed within you and you believed that Jesus is the Son of God, then you received the greatest gift of God, eternal life. And Jesus said, you will never die. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? One of the things I do as a pastor, as I'm concluding now, is as I said many times as pastors, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death with people who are going through the trauma of uh, watching a loved one die, or it is that individual, a member of our church, or dear person, and whatever the case. And often that conversation swings to us, swings to us pastors. People, people want hope. They need hope. What happens? I get posed that question. What happens to Aunt Bessie? Her last breath. What happens? 
My belief is because she had faith in Christ and the Spirit of God had joined with her spirit and given her life in Christ Jesus, she immediately appears in the presence of God. Immediately. Paul said to be absent from the body, set free from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Now her body, now we still believe in a resurrection, an actual physical resurrection. You believe that? I do. I believe that one day the trump's going to sound. But so what happens here? So, so here it is. If I can do this and change and close this down in my notes, I feel like I should. And Daryl's joining me on the platform real quickly. But I just think it's, I'm stirred this morning with the hope of eternal life. I just, my, my whole attention and affection this week has just been, thank God for eternal life. Thank God for not a blessed life, abundant life, prosperous life, full life, all of that. Success in life, that's all good. I'm not trying to take away from it. But if you don't have eternal life, you have no life. You have no life. And so it is our belief that ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Solomon said that the earth, the body is returned to the earth. And it will lay there. And it will slowly decay. Lazarus' body began to stink after four days, but had not fully succumbed to decay. But if you were to search the sands of Jerusalem and perhaps find an ossuary, is that how you say it? A box or a coffin that said Lazarus on the outside and flip it open, you would see nothing but dust in there. But because Lazarus had faith in Jesus, Lazarus is in the eternal glories of God right now. His spirit is alive in the presence of the living God. But on the day that the trump sounds and the Son of God appears, when he returns, those spirits, that body will be raised again and the spirit will re-enter that body the same way Jesus' spirit re-entered his body on Resurrection Sunday. And the Apostle Paul said, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the body shall be changed, made like unto his eternal body. And this time, death will no longer be able to touch that body because it will be changed like unto his body. The hope of eternal life is the greatest gift that God has given mankind. It's the greatest gift. I think as the American church and the culture of the American church, we need to value it again more purposefully in our own hearts and lives. So let's close. Seven signs. John, using seven as the number of completion, fullness, could have written about any of the 37 miracles, could have given us a little tidbit of all 37 miracles. But as the Spirit moved his heart, he just writes a little bit about water into wine, a nobleman's son that is healed. He writes about a lame man beside a pool. He writes about bread and fish multiplying and feeding 5,000. He writes about Jesus walking on the water like you and I walk on ground. He writes about a man that was born blind, but when Jesus spit in the dirt and made clay and put on his eyes, 
he went again and he washed and he came seeing. And lastly, he wrote about his dear friend Lazarus, four days dead, but responded to his voice when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And John said, these are written that you might believe. That's my same hope today, that you might believe, that you might believe. And by believing, have life in his name. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. I'm here today as your pastor and your friend. I preach loud. I preach loud every week. If you're new to our church, it's not going to get any better. It's just it is what it is. It stirs my heart. This word burns in me when I read it. It's like Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, I I tried not to say anything, but his word was as fire shut up in my bones. His word burned in me all week as I contemplated these seven miracles because I knew I had one point that I was going to make off of them. The purpose that they were written for was that you might believe. Isn't that good, church family, that you might believe? I don't know who's here today, but I'm going to give an invitation of an opportunity that someone might might be needing to respond to eternal life. I'm going to ask the Christians to pray for just a moment, to pray. There could be someone, a visitor, a family member, maybe your child today. Maybe through all my antics, God has used that in some way to reveal his son to someone under the sound of my voice. I have a question for you today. I want you to go with me, if you will, in your mind to Bethany's burial chamber. Stones been rolled away inside the chamber's death, but outside the chamber is resurrection and life. And Jesus, you've heard this said before, didn't say come forth. Reasons why, not alluding to that today, but he called his friend by name, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. I was eight years old in a children's church service at Landmark Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas when the Spirit of God called my name and I came forth. Many of you, you were at another church, you were a child, you were an adult, wherever you were, whatever, he called your name and you came forth. There may be somebody under the sound of my voice today, God's calling your name. Will you come forth? He's calling you out of darkness. He's calling you out of sin. He's calling you out of brokenness. He's calling you out of rebellion. He's calling you out of death into his marvelous life, into his marvelous light. If that's you, I want to ask you to be courageous enough to say, Pastor, God is calling me today. I hear him. I feel him with every fiber of my being. He's calling me today to come to him, to draw near to him, that he might draw near to me. 
that he might give me eternal life. Pastor Brown, would you pray for me? I'll pray for you today. If you're courageous enough to raise your hand, I'll be courageous enough to pray with you today. Thank you. I see a hand in the back. Is there anyone else? Other hands? Anyone else today? We're just waiting on the Lord. We're just waiting on the Lord. Thank you. Thank you so much today. Thank you today for that hand. Thank you so much. I feel the Lord. God's doing something, church family. Church family, I want to ask you to pray. I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray. I just feel it would be a miss. I feel like it would be a miss if I didn't ask the people that raised their hand to come forth. To, take, to have the courage to come. I'll meet you here. Another pastor will meet you here. We're going to have a brief prayer with you right here. Our church family will be just in, in prayer. We'll be praying with you and for you. There will be no shame. You may feel bound by, by, by chains and everything else. Come on right here. Come on, I feel the Lord today. So, Anyone else right now? Quickly, quickly, let's come real quickly. Let's come. Thank Come on, church family, we're praying today. Come on. Anybody else today? Anybody else? I feel the Lord today. I feel Jesus. It's eternal life, but it's also wholeness. He makes us whole. He makes us whole today in Jesus' name. Now, hand, now church family, let's pray together. Let's pray together right now, God, in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray. God, we're praying today, God, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I, I want to I I ask these ladies to pray a prayer with me real quickly, though, because they were the ones that raised their hand. Church family, would you all pray in this prayer and repeat it after me? And I want you ladies that raised your hand. You know who you are. You know which ones you were. I want you to pray this prayer and mean it in your heart. It's similar to the prayer that Pastor Brown prayed long years ago when I prayed a simple prayer. And I said, Dear Lord, I want you all to pray that prayer with me today. Dear Lord, I come to you today. Broken. Church family, would y'all pray this prayer with me out loud? Come on, there may be somebody. I want to ask you, put your voice with mine right now. I come to you broken. I come to you broken. I ask today that you forgive me of my sins. That you cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he died, was buried, and is raised again. And I trust him, I trust him as, my Lord as my Lord and my Savior. And my Savior. Today, Lord, Today, Lord, I commit, I commit all, that I am all that I am to you. To you. I will follow you, will follow you the, rest the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, Jesus name. Amen, and amen, amen and amen. Church family, I want to ask you to stand up with me just real quickly. Some of these ladies, I want to pray. I want to pray. Come here, sister, real quickly. I want to pray.